Hello, you're listening to the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending early Thursday, the 14th of December, because it's our last one for the year. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this last podcast of the year, Michael Harden banged on about Bangkok as a foodie destination. And summer is upon us, so who's got a pool and how do we get there? Host on Queerview Mirror and human rights lawyer Hamish McLaughlin joined us to speak about his new book, which he co-wrote, 50 Human Rights Cases That Changed Australia. And Zero G's Megan McHugh reviewed Leave the World Behind. We explore the family hierarchy of catering Christmas, but we kick off the pod with the acting force, hopelessly devoted to musical Theatre, Jay Lagaya. Melbourne's own Triple R. Jay Lagaya has been a fixture of stage, screen and more across a spectrum of genres for close to 40 years with roles in Where to Start, Star Wars, Episode 2, Attack of the Clones and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, Water Rats, All Saints, Home and Away, Xena, Warrior Princess, McLeod's Daughters, Performing at Carols by Candlelight, starring in the New Zealand production of Jesus Christ Superstar, plus of course Play School, his children's TV series, Jay's Jungle and a run of music albums for kids. Now, Jay's again treading the boards in the upcoming stage production of Grease, which opens New Year's Eve and to tell about it, the former music teacher joins us now. Jay, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, look, I'm just tired after listening to all of that. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I spent all night writing it too. Yeah, I'm tired. I'm really impressed. It's your life. Uh, it's it all began in a weird place, didn't it? For you, do you ever reflect on how it began? Oh, look, I, I think fr- from my point of view, it, it is one of those things that. Uh, when I grew up in South Auckland in New Zealand, uh, what I'm doing now was called showing off. Uh, yeah. uh, there's nothing like realising quickly that you will never be an all black. <laughs> and then go, it's, uh, I'm too far in my schooling year to realise that uh, I should actually have listened to my teachers. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, so uh, when people go, you know, what was your favourite subject? And I went, well, lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I go to school to eat other people's lunches. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, for me, I think it is one of those accidental, you know, things where you, where you're doing, you just answer ads and stuff in papers because you're just trying to find a job, and then you realise you discover um, your calling. And a lot of us tend to skate through our lives, you know, doing jobs that are just jobs that should teach us, and then we should move on to the next jobs. I think relationships are the same. Mm. But I was really lucky in that I, I. I I, I answered an ad in a paper, you know, just looking for bodies for the local theatre company and uh, and in the rehearsal process just fell in love with it. And then, you know, going, I don't know what this is because I was never trained, so you just go around stealing people's ideas. Do <laughs> <laughs> you steal like a bit of a magpie or...? Very much so. I mean, we all sort of live in that sort of... Uh, uh, that that bubble of... of of uh, um, feeling like a fraud, especially when you sort of you come into a cast like you know Greece and you see all these wonderful young people just stretching. And I thought one girl had fallen over, and I went, "Oh, you're that, that's how you come, isn't it? You just you can lie like that." I mean, I'm at that stage now where I call people to pick up stuff. <laughs> You know, you know you're getting old when you have to prepare to stand. You know? <laughs> so how is your voice? How, how have you uh, maintained it over the years? Oh, eight children. You, know? yeah. oh, wow. you just basically, uh, you're just screaming from, you know, sunrise to sunset, really. Uh, not that they actually understand you or listen to you, <laughs> but which uh, keeps me in good stead here. But, um, I mean, I'm really lucky in that, you know, in, in this show I, I play a radio DJ, so it is... Uh, um, I live you guys' life. I've done breakfast radio before and uh, I had to give it up because I was getting fat. 
<laughs> just think, is it, do you get, uh, tell us how jobs have impacted you. I mean, you say you got fat there. Is that just the hours and you just let well, yourself go? You know, no, well, see, well, it's that. Plus, you know, the fact is that every now and again you go, we're really hungry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it is seven to the top of the hour. <laughs> you know, and you, and also I love the characters because, I mean, uh, if you if you meet anybody on radio, they speak in one voice, but on when the light goes, you know, green or red, you know, it's a different thing. All we're looking for a high of twenty two degrees. Traffic is running smoothly. <laughs> that's right. Elton John mini concert coming up, but first, where were you when this one? Came uh, out? Well, you know, hasten to it. That's commercial radio. <laughs> <laughs> never be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Here is this like? Uh, does anyone have a double A battery? <laughs> <laughs> Who took the battery out of the remote? <laughs> so, and how do you enjoy rehearsing? You're in the middle of it now. Oh, look, uh, for me... And be honest. Yeah, look, for, yeah. <laughs> for me, you, you look at the uh, the alpha performer and then you take them out in the toilet, really. <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it's it's great. I mean, I, I'm i really lucky in that a lot of my um, performance in the show itself are these snippets, these voiceover snippets, you know, and followed, you know, by... It's always... Uh, um, a precursor of a sting that comes in and then you just come in and go, hey, this is main brain Vince Fontaine. But you've got to put that sort of American voice on. So I'm sort of channeling, you know, a little bit of Wolfman Jack, but more of Casey Kasem, you know, top 20, you know. Yes. So we're looking, you know, here, where were you when this one came out? You Love know? it. So, you know... Uh, but you know he's a he's a great character because I mean I get to do um, sing hand jive in in the song itself in in the thing itself which is a also a, a great big huge production number but um, during rehearsals it's it's it reminds me of of, of uh, uh, doing Lion King in that it's directed differently I know that you know there's a lot of ads going it's new it's this and I look at it and go. <sighs> been there done that but then when people ask me what's it like I went it's it's actually like doing a movie because they're directing it differently it's not the transitions are more about you know one character finishing a scene and then walking into the next scene and then continuing on and then you're left with the next scene and the music is the same they've they've treated the music differently so that it's not so much lights up next scene lights down next scene it's more about these half light transitions and and people are going what's happening here and mm. then up again and they go past the main action and then you watch them you you stopped at the main action so I think it's it's really clever and, and to have somebody like James Brown who is the designer but also the costume designer I've w- never worked on a show like that since Lion King where Julie Tamer was the one that created all the masks she did some of the lyrics for the music really? and she directed it and you know and I remember her Directing, you know, she said the opening of Lion King is my big wide shot, but then I want to, I want a, uh, a mid shot after that. But how do I get to a mid shot? Well, you know, when the lights go off after that circle of life, boom, we go blackout, and then she creates this little mouse that runs across the back of the. It's a shadow puppet. So she goes. By the time the mouse gets to the middle of the curtains everyone's focused on that mouse so that I can then go boom Ah, to a mid shot because I can't go from big to that. And this is the same. It's very much, you know, uh, um, filmic 
which are, which lends very much towards the idea of the show itself. They're going to be running cartoon um, cartoons just before we start with you know countdown five minutes to go before the show. Make sure you get your popcorn. Uh, you know, cool. so that it, it's not so much a theater. It's more like Cirque in that when you walk into the theater, it becomes an event. You smell the popcorn. Um, you know, you you are transported back into that time, and uh, and I think that uh, the casting is really clever. Um, but also the story itself is, is timeless. And I always argue it's, it's the original. So it's, it's pre-Heathers, Mean Girls, you know, high school musical. It's pre-all of that stuff. They're, they're, you know, and, and to have somebody iconic like um, you know, Olivia Newton-John, mm. whose Australian you know, accent just cuts through everything, you know, uh, for me it's just, it's just a pleasure to work on. Yeah. Mm. What about your comedy? I'm wondering about your approach to comedy. Do you even think about it, or because you, you've been, you've done a lot of sketch comedy? Yeah. Is it just natural? I think that the idea great comedy comes out of real life situations, scenarios. You know, uh, there are some great comedians who can create this faux idea of comedy or set up monologues, like Billy Connolly can. Mm. You know, I think it's. It's not fair if you know you can speak with a Scott a accent, you know, as, as, you know, you know, and he tells these great stories of I, you know, Ivan the Terrible with his two famous holes, the half press hole and the full press. <laughs> you know, it's like African American guys and Scottish guys. It's not fair because they start off sounding <laughs> just absolutely. You just you're drawn in, but for me, I think it, you know, comedy has to come from from real life, you know, watching somebody who trips over and the first thing they do is look around to see if anybody saw them, <laughs> you know. I think, you know, it, it is always funny or, you know, the comment that my son made last week about, what time is your 9 o'clock appointment? And I go, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's your mother's side of the family. So. Uh, and now, who's intimidating in the cast? Oh, Marsha is. Uh, really? You know, Marsha, you know, it's that thing of going, she has, you know, that iconic song, Beauty School Dropout. But, you know, you you know the hierarchy. You can, it doesn't matter <laughs> that you play the Lion King, you know. I walk in and go, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> and then Marsha goes, hey, guy. And, goes, and I become the cup. <laughs> yeah, so, but no, no, she's, she's great. But, you know, it is, you know, everybody is working towards the same thing. And I think uh, we're really also excited that we've been invited to do carols this year uh, at the Maya Music Bowl. So you, you're excited, but you're also going, where do we slip that one in? Mm. <laughs> so, so simple arrangement, please. Um, but, yeah, you know, and, and we're aiming for, a, you know, a 30th of December, our, our first previews as such. And then when you start seeing ads going, three weeks to go, and, yeah. and I go, I should really learn that line. <laughs> wow. Uh, what is the – so this your whole summer, how much of 2024 is taken up with Greece for you? A majority of 2024 is, um, it's, is taken up um, – it, it is one of those things that uh, um, I'm what is known as an endangered species. I'm an actor that's working. <laughs> you know, so, you know, uh, you you look at that. I mean, I've got my family all sort of working at the moment. My son's just come back from... They're all... Didn't have eight? Yeah. Well, they're all I working. Of, I can't remember their names, but <laughs> yeah. I just say, hey, you. But, uh, and they're all working. Yeah, well, um, I've got four of them who are just... Uh, one's just come back from uh, Manila. He's on the Asian tour of Hamilton. Wow. Uh, so uh, I've got a daughter just, uh, she's 18, but she finished uh, production of Heather's uh, up in Sydney before I came down. And then I've got one who's about to start rehearsals 
with rent. Crikey, and you got gonna... the Von Trapps over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's that thing of going as as a as a performer. I'm really proud. As a parent, I'm just so disappointed. <laughs> it's like well, all that money I invested in your education, <laughs> and you chose to do this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's wild. Uh, well, okay. Now, Greece is on at Her Majesty's, Her Majesty's, um, and it's is it Her Majesty's? Yes, mm. and. You, I suppose you want us to get tickets now. It's, it's New Year's yeah. Eve. What a what a way to spend New Year's well, Eve. Well, look, it's a gr- uh, for me. It's a it's a great uh, Christmas present. Mm. Um, but it is like most things uh, when people talk about uh, Greece and, and what Greece is to me. Uh, it is very much the idea of of you know going back to revisit you know uh, uh, you know uh, an era of music that basically you know was the soundtrack for a lot of people's lives you know when people go to see shows like this they go remember when when me and mum you know when mum was still alive or dad was still alive and you know, and it's just fun i mean i saw you know the recent revival of mamma mia and and i couldn't figure it out and then i went there and it was just you were just swept up into this jukebox you know, all these familiar songs, you know, and there were young people and old people who, you know, gathered to come and watch it. And mm. it was it was like this live concert. And you sort of sit there and go, after the pandemic, everybody just wants comfort food. Everybody wants to go to theatre to to be entertained. They don't want to, you know, they want to participate in the adventure. And I, and I always say to especially young students, our job is to make people forget their lives for three hours. That's our job. Yeah. You know, it's as simple, it's as, simple as that. I remember I had a VHS copy of Greece, and for some reason it was it, the tracking would always – the tape got ruined because of the pausing when there was a milkshake thrown. Yeah. Just very simple but yeah. iconic See, for families. But those, those, yeah, those are things that sort of stick in your head and you're watching the live show and go, milkshake thrown now? <laughs> <laughs> milkshake, you know, and then people go – that's right. I remember, and then we had uh, you know I'm to come you know, and so all of a sudden that, that's that's what shows like this, and especially Greece, you know, brings to families. It's like uh, it's like going to carols in that we're creating life memories, and and we invite parents to bring their young ones along because I think it is very much it's a joyous occasion. It's a snippet of of what used to be, and as I said before, you know. With music, you know, uh, from from you know the Bee Gees right through to Sha Na Na, you mm. know, I, I think it's an iconic uh, uh, era. Well, you're doing all the work now to make it look seamless in a couple of weeks. Uh, good luck with that, Jay. You can get tickets to uh, Greece at it's showing at Her Majesty's in Melbourne from 31st of December. Gee, it's been a real treat to have you in, and uh, you better shape up. I suppose that you got that playing in your mind all the time. Uh, look, you know, Greece is the word, but may the force be with you. Hey, Jelly Guy, thank you very much. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Wow, this is it, his final food interlude segment for the year. It's Australia's gourmet traveller, Michael Hard. Morning, Michael. <laughs> good morning. How are you? Yeah, not as good as you, we bet. Yeah. <laughs> you get around. I do. I do get around. It's sort of like, you know, but it's all, it's all work. Of you course know, that, it is. You know, it's like I'm just a, I'm just a professional. That's right. So. Uh, so now what do you want to tell us about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was... In Bangkok recently, I was in Thailand um, recently and um, was absolutely blown away by the food culture there. It is, I think, probably perhaps the most exciting food city in the world at the moment. It's, um, you know, the, Mm. it is, 
from and the thing about it is that it's sort of like I think what's really exciting, particularly coming from sort of a Western country, um, is that it's so different. And there's sort of like you just find these levels of kind of brilliance at every level. It's not you're not sort of just forking out, you know, a whole lot of money for something that's um, you know that's that's great. Like in Western, there seems to be a sort of a bit of a, an economical hierarchy in a way of like you know what's considered good, which I think is breaking down a little bit. But um, in Bangkok, it's sort of like you know there's sort of the you know, for example, the best mango sticky rice that you can get in Bangkok, which is just, you know, I just cry because I can't get it, <laughs> yeah. um, is on a, at a street vendor, you know, right near a night, right near a subway station, and they do, you know, and they just and they don't do. There's no sort of eating in or anything like that. You can do takeaway. You can get it delivered if you want that sort of stuff. But they, you get, and the, you know, just the most beautiful mangoes and like this incredible rice that's, you know, it's flavoured with either coconut milk or with pandan or different things like that. And it is, you know, and it's you get it and. Because Bangkok is so hot and you get it and it's cold as well. So you're eating this sort of cold, sticky sweetness that just sort of seems to be some sort of elixir of life, you know, and it's kind of like you feel like you can, you know, struggle on to the next (laughs) street vendor and pig out there too. And do you you just follow your nose or do you have tips or are you designing your own tips? What's your approach? I think... Don't I usually when I'm when I'm there I don't have enough time to follow my nose. But I have luckily I have a really good friend um, Zenon Misko who um, was formerly at um, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival and he's now living there. And he's like he was over there. His wife got a job there and so they went over. They had a little baby and so um, Kitty was working and Zenon was out and he is just a food fanatic and he just strapped. Yuri on his front and just went walking all over Bangkok so he knows everywhere mm. where to go. So it was just this like amazing treasure trove. But the what a thing, boon for Bangkok. I know. It's, game it's, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> and, and the good thing is that he is now doing some writing. There's a really good website called roadbook.com. Um, and Zenon is one of their sort of Bangkok correspondents now. So he will give you – there's lists of best places to eat street food, best markets. There's other people writing about sort of high-end Bangkok places as well, but it's a really good source. They don't just do Thailand. It's actually a really good source for a lot of places around the world. You mm-hmm. know, and they, it's sort of food-focused, but they've, also, they've always got a really good – sort of, they want to give you the sort of good – um, the skinny on the good good street places and stuff like that. So it's a it's a really good new website and looks good. Too. And was it street food? Yeah. Oh no, sorry, I didn't. I was just going to ask you a quick question about the street food. Now I don't mm. want to take so of course too much. But do they ever get like any? I don't know. Is there something below stars? Are they capable of getting like Michelin stars? Oh yeah, yeah. Like the, that? The, yep. the mango sticky rice okay. place was mentioned in the Michelin guide. So okay. like oh, cool. you know, Michelin is sort of like you know. The, and the other thing is that you find a lot of really really good food in Bangkok in the food courts. Yeah. And there's like Michelin starred places in all these food courts, and they're some of the greatest places to eat because it's like the only problem with them is it's sort of like you become well if you're like me you become paralyzed by choice mm. and just sort of sit in the middle of this like gigantic thing with all these great food mm. options just spinning around going but 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 I only have one stomach <laughs> so you know it's like so and, uh, science is working on it Mike. Yeah, yeah, exactly exactly I'm, I'm in line I can, I'm guinea pig so. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, there's like, you know, there was one player. Yeah, and the good thing about Thailand as well, like in Bangkok as well, is that it's really multicultural because so you get you can get, you know, some of the greatest Thai food in the world there. But there's also like a fantastic Japanese scene. You know, there's sort of like a really good Japanese coffee house scene going that it's sort of been imported. There's a very big expat Japanese community in Bangkok and they've sort of imported the Japanese coffee house scene there, so there was a place that was right near where I was staying in a place called Tong Lo, 
and um, it was called the Commons, and it was like this open aired sort of multi level place that it, that was um, just lots of lots of different businesses. Like there was like you know little Japanese highball bars, and there was little cocktail bars, and there was chicken places, and you know southern you know Isan Thai places and everything. But on the top level, it had this amazing coffee house with great views over the city um, called The Grounds and um, no, it was called Roast. The Grounds was the other one. The Roast was the, was the name of this and it had things like they do things with coffee there that's really adapted to the temperature so there was, they do this iced espresso there but the they give you a glass and it's got actual espresso ice blocks in it. Mm. So you have those there and then they give you a little sort of thing of milk or cream and then some sugar syrup on the side and so you can just mix it up and it just becomes stronger as it melts into the... And so it's Yum. one of the most delicious things. And the, there's also a thing that that's originally from Tokyo called... A, it's like a dirty coffee, which is, um, which is really big in Thailand as well, or in Bangkok at least. Um, and it is where they have you, – you put cold milk and maybe a little cream into a glass and then it gets an espresso poured on top of it. And so it kind of it coats the edges of the glass, but it's, it's also like a, a colder coffee. So it's sort of like there's ways – like it's adapted to the environment. So, mm. you know, you can get your coffee hit. But not sort of like you know keel over in the heat. So, <laughs> oh, it sounds delicious. Yeah, it's so good. And so you, good. it sounds like a witticism when you say Bangkok has great Thai food, but there's no guarantees there. No, no, no. There's plenty. Of, there's plenty of places you know around the world that you know you look, look at Paris, and it's like yeah, there's some great food in Paris, but also you can like if you don't do it right, it it's awful. Mm. Like they're really bad. There's some really bad restaurants in Paris where Bangkok is sort of like you know to me. Um, you know, and I was only only there for a few days, so this is a sort of broad sweeping generalisation. But to me, I, I did not have bad food there, mm-hmm. and it's, it reminded me of Tokyo in that way that you kind of Tokyo, it's you know, it's almost impossible to find bad food. Mm. What, uh, what are the meals like? Is it three meals a day? Culturally, what's going on? There's a lot of. A lot of snacking because there's just little bits and pieces. So you know you we, we, and you know being with Xenon, we were we were snacking, and, um, <laughs> and it's so hot, you know right. I feel yeah. like that's conducive to not sitting down having a big heavy meal. Yes, mm. yeah, and it's sort of like and then you're also the, the heat also makes you you know you're sort of dashing you know when you're a wilting Anglo flower like I am in the heat you know it's kind of like I was sort of dashing from one place that like to one air conditioned space to the next and it's sort of like and all of those spaces have food. Mm. <laughs> so you know it's like you know it's like oh let's just go into this. Food court, yeah. <laughs> just just for uh, you know again professional reasons. Uh, any other dishes that struck you? There was there's a restaurant. I've written the name down here because my Thai is almost not well is non-existent, <laughs> and um, it is called uh, Kia Kling Pak Sot, and it's a southern Thai restaurant again in Tong Lo. Beautiful, one of the one of my favourite places I've ever eaten in my life. It was um, back streets off the main roads, tiny little sort of modest front. It's like a leafy little back lane, and um, it's a place that's all it's run by all women. Um, women in the kitchen, women on the floor. Um, it's all the mothers and grandmothers' recipes, and it's Southern Thai food, so it's super spicy. Um, they will be kind to you if you ask, but you know, do you really want to humiliate yourself <laughs> like that? And there is um, there's a there's a, a pork dish there called it's kua kling, which is a classic. Um, southern pork dish, very spicy. It's like a dry pork curry and it's got um, like chilies and mukrat and lemongrass and stuff like that flavoured in it. And
and it was one of the most delicious things and it was quite, it was really spicy and I was eating it and I had tears mm. coming out of my eyes and I couldn't stop shoveling it in my mouth because mm. it was so delicious. What an unusual experience. <laughs> yeah, and then they and then they had like and then but they had a really good wine list as well which they included a lot of like German Riesling and Austrian Grüner Veltliner which are really good wines that go with this food so you kind of like this cool sweetish German wine eating it with this like super spicy pork and it just kind of like the meld of it was just fantastic. I was like I was a happy happy person so I'll speak for myself I don't have any plans to go to Bangkok Mm. coming up is there anywhere I mean I feel like Melbourne lacks like it's getting better, food, but it's, it's getting it's better. It's getting really, it's getting really good. Like we're, there's sort of like a little Thai town that's starting to happen on Burke Street. Uh-huh. So there's been in the last two years, there's been seven or eight Thai restaurants that have opened on Burke Street, and there's some really good ones. You can get Isan food, you can get Southern Thai food. Mm. Yeah, you know where Soy Thirty Eight yeah. is. So Soy Thirty Eight kind of started it. It was like it, it was there and it got really, really popular. And now there's all these other ones that have sort of seeded in there, which are really good. So it's like you can go on a little little Thai food crawl along there and. Can you, uh, what's important, food writers and comedians and, I don't know, any professional communicator gives voice to maybe what's going on in people's heads but they can't articulate it. Mm. Why do I love Thai food? <laughs> Thai food, I think because it's sort of – it's one of those ones It really just – um, dances across the palate because it's like there's so many it's like salty it's fishy it's hot it's sweet it's like you know and it's kind of like it's you know the party in your mouth kind of thing so it's kind of like it really is you know you've got that sour that beautiful sour taste in it there's citrus you know all of those things so it's it's really it's like a generous food in that it's kind of like looking after all your different taste buds and taste sensations mm. in your mouth and I think that's why it is because you just feel I feel like it invigorates you when you eat it because it's like your senses are being really stimulated mm. Mm. poetry <laughs> oh boy and it's there's something clean clean mm. about it yes clean fresh in yeah that's it that you know again invigorating like even when it's hot you know that chilly punch it's kind of like you know it's like you know you're alive you know when your eyes are watering you can't see and you're still <laughs> shoveling food in your mouth so yeah okay. wow and and you're, that name of your friend's uh, yeah. publication? It's, it's roadbook.com. Mm. Um, really good um, new new um, new public you know, online publication. And, you know, the good thing that I like to also sort of like advertise for it, like push for it, is because that they, they pay their writers really well. Yeah. So um, I like that too. So Melbourne's loss is Bangkok's gain. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll be joining us on Friday. Yeah, yeah, I'm back again. Yeah. Sorry. Two days. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's not far. It's yeah. the Corner Hotel. Yeah, Corner Hotel and doing a little bit of a sort of a wrap-up of some stuff that I've liked this year and uh, some things that you might want to look forward to. Oh, good. Brilliant. Oh, some things you've liked and that we'll look forward to. You're yeah, not going to denounce look... anything in a florid... Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's the ending. I'm definitely mic-dropping by the end of it. So. <laughs> Michael Harden, thanks for everything. No worries. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. I went to the pool yesterday in the heat. Oh. Great idea. <laughs> Wasn't it? Wasn't the only one with the idea. It was absolutely heaving, but I don't think I'm unique in this way. But I absolutely love a swim. It's my favourite 
I think it's yeah my favorite activity. Mm. I try swim consistently throughout the year. Um, but yeah, struck by the crowds, I guess yesterday I was just thinking I'm like, I definitely want to broaden my horizons with the swimming spots that I hit up. I know that there's been a lot of talk about the new pool in Northcote mm. that has finally opened up, which you attended, Mon. I yes, Rudy loved it. Yeah, heard great things. There's some. Rudy great... loves everything, so you know that's. <laughs> yeah, uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually he's read... a pushover. That he's kid. A soft touch toddler. He oh, said, no, yeah. not a toddler, infant. I mean, well, he said toddler. something very different <laughs> online <laughs> on the NARC <laughs> online review. He was absolutely scathing. One star. Yeah, but impressive. <laughs> not enough. Touch typing skills. <laughs> Really bang that out. There's some great ones south of the river. Paran Pool, I think, is meant to be great. There's maybe the worst named pool, Harold Holt, Glen Iris. Mm. Where else? Oh, the, the Brighton Sea Baths. Oh, yes. Yeah, which, again, I just need to think of these. Uh, some great natural swimming spots as well, like on in Warrandyte along the river. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ricketts Point down in Bo Morris. Yeah, I just kind of need to get out there a bit more. I was like, where are these spots that I can go? But I feel Geelong like... Waterside Park. <laughs> well, exactly. The water parks are definitely high on the list. I'm really psyched for that. Those natural summer. wonders. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> but like, I feel like it's tricky to get new swimming spots because the nature of them, maybe if you have a great one, you want to keep it to yourself. A little bit, yeah, which I think is fair enough. Or keep it to locals maybe at least to limit the crowds. So I was like, okay, these are just public spaces. Like how do you tap into the private pools as well? It's like maybe that's where it's at. Maybe that's an approach. Like people's houses. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. How do I befriend people with pools Mm. is what I was thinking. I'm like maybe that is because there's lots of lists online of where you can go to the different pools around Melbourne and different water parks but I was like okay maybe that could be my go-to tip for keeping cool this summer how to publishing a list of addresses (laughs) and bird's eye view photos (laughs) Uh, yeah maybe yeah some ways to kind of infiltrate into the the pool social circle I don't Mm. know yeah have a dip while you still there out yeah (laughs) (laughs) Just get on Google Maps satellite view and you'll be able to see who's got a pool. Well, there you go. Thank you. Tip one. There you go, Mon. Absolutely. (laughs) That's tip one. I didn't even think of that. I I got as far as like lingering in like the inflatable toy section in like a department store and looking to strike up a conversation. Maybe you could head to a pool shop. And I don't know, pretend like you're I'll interested. Buy some pool salts. Yeah, pool pretend, noodle. yeah, ask lots and of questions. What? And then you'd be like, oh, this is for ah. um, your pool. <laughs> Do yeah. you know anyone who might need these? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Wait for someone to come in and be like, oh, I've used them before. I don't know, strike I'd love up to a conversation. Come see your pool. Yeah, and not tailgate I want them to see home. Yours. What if they're doing the same thing? Uh, yes. Mm. Let's <gasps> compare and contrast pH levels. Yes, please. Can we? Someone on the text line has given a shout out to Broadmeadows Pool. They said, get out of the inner city apparently it's big new and very quiet okay i love that and thank you for sharing that's Mm. really i really appreciate that um oh and another tip yes oh look they're coming in didn't even ask for them we already got what we wanted yeah um just pretend to be a hotel guest (gasps) go to a hotel pool i think that is easier said than done yes have either of you ever done that on holiday never game to try any of that stuff yeah it is a bit scary because it's public humiliation if you 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 said especially if you're already kitted out to swim like if you're in your bathers and then you get marched out of there 
uh-huh. shameful. Yeah. Yeah, you're already exposed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and if there's a pool bar or something like that, you typically need to have a room Charge number. Charge to room one million. Yes. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to get frog marched where there's uh, you're vulnerable to dacking. <laughs> yeah. Or a wedgie. Yeah, you're wet. You got a wedgie. You're in thongs. No, no one wants to do that. But I back onto kind of hunting down or befriending people with pools. I stupidly was like googled how to befriend people with pools. I was like, maybe there's like a tongue in cheek article that can kind of give me some inspiration. And I was really caught caught off guard because there actually was the first result that came up an article titled how to gain friends with the swimming pool that was the headline and I thought well how how perfect this is exactly what I'm after can I read you the intro Mm. a good friend is always there for you a shoulder to lean on a smile a person who has your back and you have theirs for some making friends isn't easy especially in a world with hectic schedules Or if you already have friends, there's always room for more. The wonderful thing about swimming pools is that they bring people together. And there's one thing swimming pool owners have in common. They're swimming in social life. We've put together a list of the top ways a swimming pool can help you create new friends. Oh, so that's about... And keep them. So that's about (laughs) getting a pool to get friends. Exactly. Oh, no. I know. I was like, give me a break. This is the wrong way around. I misinterpreted it. Aren't you hanging around the bins wanting to get to know your neighbours? Yeah. Yeah. So don't go. What do you mean? Your your tactic to get to to make friends was to hang out the bins in your apartment block to meet people. Yeah. So you're saying, well, building a pool isn't worse than that. No, but more more it's like this article. It's like they don't need the article. It's the other way around. Mm. The people who want to befriend the people with the pools. It's Mm. like, yeah, I get it. We can all be lonely (laughs) at the top, but at least they're floating in a pool. Yeah, in which to enjoy their loneliness. Yeah, this article is only useful to people who've got like swim around in it. Yeah, got a hundred k to drop on a pool. Someone did say because I suggested before go on Google satellite view and see which houses have pools, and someone which is way creepier than any of my suggestions, by the way. Well, I'm not saying I would do it. Yeah, someone did it on the text line. Okay, great. Friend and I once a creepy listener. (laughs) A friend and I once looked at satellite views to find a pool close by to jump in. Turned out it was a big blue tarp over a playground. There you go. I love it. Did they jump on the tarp? Who knows? They got yeah, broken arm now. Yeah, I. That's great. I mean, because I used to do it as well, like, but there's that documentary as well. They would go searching for the empty pools to, what is it, Lords of Dogdown, to skateboard in. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. So they would drop in. So, yeah, I didn't Could think about the, the, the Google. Well, I mean, I had an above-ground pool growing up and everyone made fun of me. Oh, oh that's rubbish. And then now, yeah, it's like. Kids find anything to make fun of you, though. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, your shoelaces are the different colour to mine. Yeah. You suck. That's right. I mean, the... It was bad. I had a pool party and um, everyone uh, got the papillomavirus oh, <laughs> on their feet. Oh, no. <gasps> okay, so maybe maybe it was a valid criticism. I should have really read that website about how to <laughs> yeah, win friends should've. and influence people. The other, yeah, the other points are pools provide a place to listen and the third point is pools help you relax, making friendships easier. And I had flashbacks to going to when I moved schools, I went over, I was maybe like only been at the school a month or two or 
a girl's house who had a pool and it was one of the most terrifying experiences ever. She was so rough. We played a game in the pool and I remember being like dunked and held under <laughs> and I was like reading this article saying how it's so relaxing and lovely. How about this scam? <laughs> so a listener used to book a room at a hotel with a good pool, then arrive in quotes from interstate and then invite their, <laughs> their Melbourne friends over for a swim <gasps> and then they'd split the room cost between us all. And it was I, a great pool day out. I mean, they're, they're allowed to – well, you're not allowed to invite friends to your hotel room, are you? But, but you're paying for it. As long yeah. as there's one of you yeah. then and everyone carries themselves. As though in you're a guest. In a dignified yeah. way, yeah. Oh. And you just drip feed them in so you don't arrive in one big group. That's right, yeah. With all, yeah, and yeah. I, or you give the card, a swipe card to one person, go out and bring the next person in or whatever. Ah, okay. I don't mind that because it's like semi-honest. Like you're mm. paying for a room. Yeah. But you're just exploiting it a little bit. I think but it's that's a big completely fair enough. Mm. Just invite your most trustworthy friends. Oh, I'll see you He's there not at gonna, the pool this Yeah, summer. not exactly. going to blow your cover. <laughs> Triple R. Hamish McLaughlin is a human rights lawyer who has previously worked at Victoria Legal Aid, advising and representing clients in relation to a range of human rights issues, including anti-discrimination law, mental health and disability law, tenants, social security, refugee and migration law. Hamish is currently co-manager of public law at the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria and has now co-written the new book, 50 Human Rights Cases That Changed... Australia and to tell us about it in studio from the other side of the desk, the esteemed co-host of Triple R's Queerview Mirror joins us now. Hamish, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> it's it's exciting a... to be on the side of the uh, microphone. Yeah, it's a bit <laughs> mind-bending, is or eye-twisting for us. Um, tell us about human rights in principle. Are they easy to define? Are there grounds in dispute? Are they relative? What is the case for human rights? That's a really interesting question. So I think there's two ways you can look at them. You can look at them the way you were kind of talking about as a kind of a concept, like what is a human right? But in the law, they are actually pretty defined and people perhaps wouldn't know that. So they have a pretty long genesis. You can trace some of them going back probably to like ancient Greece, but uh, more recently, certainly uh, in the United States, Bill of Rights after their War of Independence, after the French Revolution, there was uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man. But in their current form, in their modern form, where they appear in uh, international treaties and they are quite defined, really came out of uh, World War II and the Holocaust. So after people saw what terrible things had been done uh, by the Nazis and particularly to the Jewish people, there was uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written and a series of rights were enumerated quite quite specifically in that document. And then since then, there's been a number of international treaties that have expanded on those rights. And then in most countries in the world, those have been incorporated into national legislation to make them real at a, um, in a, in a country-by-country level. Australia is an exception to that. Oh, and it's an exception because we haven't legislated or...? Yes, correct. Right. So uh, while most countries have a sort of their own Bill of Rights that sets out um, Bill of Rights at a national level, Australia hasn't done that. We do have a human rights instrument here in Victoria at the state level. As with a lot of things, Victoria led the way um, in Australia in terms of uh, progressive legal reforms, but we don't have one at the Australian level. Okay. And so w- with these cases, how does human rights in 
cases apply in this in our context if we if we don't have these legislated human rights? Yes. So um, in a couple of ways. So number one, there are cases that are Victorian. So we have our Victorian Charter of Human Rights. So that means that people can bring human rights claims under that in Victoria. Uh, but there are what we show in the book is that because we don't have a National Bill of Rights or Human Rights Act, uh, there's a kind of understanding among the public that uh, perhaps there are no human rights cases in Australia. But um, that's also not the case. It just means that lawyers have had to be a lot more creative. <laughs> and so there's cases that human rights cases that are um, brought, but not using a National Human Rights Act, you have to like be a bit more creative using uh, what's called tort law or through the criminal law and that kind of thing. And then there are also specific rights that have been legislated. So we have quite good um, protection for human the human right against discrimination. So there's the Racial Discrimination Act people probably will have um, heard of. There's also a Sex Discrimination Act, a Disability Discrimination Act at the national level as well. So there is uh, good protection for those rights. And there are some rights in the Constitution, uh, but it's pretty arbitrary. So there's a right to jury trial. Uh, the High Court has inferred into the Constitution a right to um, expression of political communication, but only political communication, not expression more broadly. So there's protection for some rights, but it's pretty patchy. Mm. So it really depends which right you're trying to uh, protect and it also means where in Australia you live. Do you think there's an advantage to not having a Bill of Rights? Uh, not that I can see. Um, it's uh, It puts us really on an outlier from the rest of the world. And I think so when we wrote this book, we've collected together um, 50 of the most impactful human rights cases that we have have in Australia, notwithstanding our um, a lack of a National Human Rights Act. And I think what really is shown from the story that comes out of these cases is although we don't have a great human rights jurisprudence because uh, we don't have that kind of coherent uh, instrument, what we do have, very few people would disagree with the outcomes in, the ca in these cases. So uh, controversial at the time, but when people look back on them, uh, people from all sides of politics, I think, mostly would be saying, actually, I'm glad that there was that outcome. So, for example, Marbo, there's very few people who think that we should still regard Australia as having been terra nullius. There's very few people who would disagree with the concept of equal pay for men and women, which there's a case in the book about. There's very few people that would argue that women should have a right to choose in relation to their reproductive health, which there's a case about. Uh, there's very few people that would think that uh, a mayor should be able to cancel uh, protest because they don't like the uh, particular uh, message, which there's a case about. So uh, if you look at that, it's like we don't have enough human rights uh, cases because of the lack of uh, a national instrument, but what we do have is very good, so we should want more. And the, so you have a forward by the Honourable Michael Kirby. Do these cases span all different, you know, the county and supreme and high... Tell us about the spread of cases. Uh, yeah, exactly. So one of the fun things of writing the book was we had to choose 50. And um, so we quite often get the, asked that question, how did you choose 50? Uh, people like to know 
the Colonel's secret spices, you know. <laughs> so I'll let you know a couple of spices. Uh, we wanted to have a spread across various things. So we wanted a spread across Australia. So we've got cases from all states and territories. It was easier for some states and territories than others. So there's quite a few Victorian cases in there. I think there's only one from WA, <laughs> um, for example. But we did get one in from every state and territory. And we did want... Um, a range of what they call in the law uh, for, fora, if you're using the Latin, mm. so forums. Um, so there are cases, a lot from the High Court, but then there's also cases from uh, tribunals, there's cases from industrial tribunals, there's cases from uh, equal opportunity commissions, there's cases from various levels of courts, uh, there's cases from international bodies as well. So there's a couple from the UN, one about when the UN said that Tasmania's laws that uh, criminalised gay sex were against um, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that led to the repeal of that law at long last. So, yeah, there's a range across that and there's also a range across time. So we've got cases that go right back to, there's one from 1922, which was about the St. Patrick's Day Parade that got um, cancelled that I was just mentioning earlier. And then there's cases right up to 2022 where the High Court uh, declared that Aboriginal people could not be um, regarded as non-citizens and therefore deported from Australia. And your summaries, uh, are they? Is it, does it come easily to you to make legalese accessible or do you have to turn your brain on? Uh, well, I, th- I hope what you're finding from this interview is it comes easily. I hope that's <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, no, 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 it's very hard. It's much easier for if you're a lawyer just to be able to write in the code and you can do it very quickly. So it ta- it's actually harder and takes a lot longer to be able to write something uh, simply that everybody can um, understand and I think that was a real challenge but one we found enjoyable. Yeah, I bet. What is that about? Do you, wh- what is the code? Uh, I mean, I, I know what the code is but what's it for and in your experience, how many people have your ability to switch codes? Well, it's about efficiency. So if every what if everybody knows the code, if you're amongst just lawyers, you can just say concepts and everyone knows them and they're shorthand and everybody knows what you're talking about because they've had the training and whatnot. So that's useful. But um, if you have to, at each, each sentence, uh, explain what that concept is, it just take, takes a lot longer. But without sounding condescending or simplistic. Yeah. Or even boring yourself. <laughs> Dad, I reckon a bunch of lawyers sitting around having law chat, they're not getting bored. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. Yeah. Uh, and did, how do you get along with Michael Kirby? <laughs> Michael Kirby was very generous to write that introduction for him because he, for us because he's a... Um, He's a legend mm. uh, and, um, yeah, you'll see he wrote some very kind things about our book but he also was very keen on their, us writing a sequel, what he called a shadow book, <laughs> where we wrote um, summaries on all the cases that rather than changing Australia for the better, stuffed Australia. Ah. Which I think because he's written a lot of cases, uh, like a lot of judgments, he's famously like the the great dissenter, like has usually voted against what everybody else has said when they're trying to diminish people's rights. So I think possibly he wanted to see some of those judgments. Hamish just got commissioned by Honourable Michael Kirby to write a (laughs) book. That's amazing. And just quickly, well, not quickly, where are we at with... Human rights. Are you optimistic? Does the, you know, does the arc bend inevitably 
in favour to where you want it to go or not necessarily? Well, I think on the global stage, which is one of the points that Michael Kirby makes in the introduction, is he says the current context of our time is a battle between the rule of law and human rights on one hand and autocracy, oppression uh, on the other hand. And you can see that in uh, Eastern Europe, there's a real sweeping of... Um, right-wing populism and a real um, scepticism and demonising, really, of human rights concepts. But you can also see it in America uh, with what's happening with Donald Trump uh, and um, many other places across the world, Russia, obviously. So, no, it's not inevitable uh, and there's a danger that people take them for granted. In Australia, um, one of the things we say in the book is that it would be good if we had a constitutional bill of rights that would require, I'm sorry to say the word, the R word, but a referendum. <laughs> yeah. So having seen how hard it is to get up that sort of constitutional reform, that's um, somewhat discouraging. However, I think in terms of just the um, appetite to have some sort of national instrument, um, I think we're seeing a growing push for that. All right. Well, Hamish McLaughlin's fascinating new book, co-written with Lucy Geddes, is 50 Human Rights Cases That Changed Australia. It's out via Federation Press and it's the first in a in a series <laughs> we've just learned. Um, Hamish, we'll catch you on Queerview Mirror. Yes, absolutely. See us on Wednesdays, 1pm. 50 Human Rights Cases That Changed Australia. Hamish McLaughlin's our guest. Thanks very much. Thanks. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. What a delight to have in studio for the final film review of the year from Zero G, Megan McHugh. Morning, Megan. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, now, are, are we sticking with the sci-fi realm or where are we heading? Look, it's probably more of a... The thing sci-fi likes to look at, which is societal breakdown, is the focus of this film. So mm. we're talking about Leave the World Behind. It's on Netflix, so you can stream it right now. Uh, it's a tense, atmospheric... I think we're going to call it a thriller... Although thrill depends on your definition. Uh, It's about two families who are stuck in a very strange and apocalyptic situation. And we've got our family, Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke. They play a couple who rent out an Airbnb on Long Island for their family for like an impromptu holiday. Just take the kids and leave the world behind. You've always got to have that title in there. Um, But little odd things start happening. The Wi-Fi and reception cuts out. There's a strange incident on the beach. No TV signal. And then there's this thing with the deer. I'll leave that there for later. (laughs) Um, And then things take an even more unusual turn when two strangers show up unexpectedly late in the night with a knock at the door and they're asking to be allowed into the house to stay so they can escape a blackout in the city. Turns out it's the Airbnb owner, played by Mahershala Ali, and he's got his daughter in tow, played by Mahala. Um... But are they who they say they are? And what exactly is happening back out in the world while they're isolated at this holiday house? So that's kind of setting our scene here. And the whole film deals with matters of race, class, nostalgia a little bit, which I thought was interesting, isolation, and mainly the dangers of over-reliance on technology in modern society, namely in the US, uh, and it's against this backdrop of a mysterious set of events. Can I ask about technology in films like this? Because it sounds like you've got to go through quite a period to make sure they don't have any technology. In this film, it's pretty much 
we're, we're straight in there. Okay. Like we're isolating them. We're taking away their technology. There's actually some interesting kind of throwbacks to a time before we had technology. And you start to realize exactly how things might have changed over the past 20 or so years. And they use a really interesting inclusion of a TV show to start to highlight that. Mm -hmm. So I think the whole technology element was really interesting to me going into it. But also the fact they're isolated. We're talking it's a bottle movie. Mm. We're really focusing on the four main leads. There's two kids there. I didn't even write the actors' names down. Like, they don't matter. Um, They're great in the film. Everyone does a fantastic job acting. And I think... The really great thing is it plays off the contrasts between the two families and that's how it sets up the drama. So we've got like Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke on one side. We've got Mahershala and we've got Mahala on the other side. And it's really digging into the drama inside the house, what's happening between them and their relationship, but also what's happening outside in the world. And that's really breadcrumbs throughout the film, really eerie happenings and that's really how we think, oh, can they trust each other? Who are these people how has their relationship changed over the movie? So I think that's really, it's a its a character piece, but it's also about situ- the situation, which is, you know, societal collapse, mm. I suppose. Um, and is it a, this sounds like a lame question, but it's, it's uh, no there's the import behind it. Is, it. is it a bad date kind of movie? Ooh, it depends on the date. Depends mm. on the date. So if it's, you're taking someone who is all vibes, no plot, fine with them. <laughs> Great. If you if you want to take someone who's like, I really love things like Deep Impact. I really love things ah. where there's a clear climax and conclusion. This is not the film for you. Ah. It's really tense from the jump. It's very meandering. So we're in for a slow burn, and I'm talking slow, with these little kind of spikes of strange happenings that really kind of put you on edge. And this continu- continuous unsettling feeling yeah do you feel like you're like a fly on the wall of their holiday a little bit yes but what i would say is we don't get enough of that okay so i think part of where the movie starts to fall down is it tries to do a bit too much so we're really going oh unsettling vibes tidbits of weird things happening what's going on what actually is this event that's going on outside But then we also have, okay, character focus. We're in the house, the contrast between these families, you know, who's growing close, who's in conflict. But it doesn't take enough time to do both of those things well, Mm -hmm. even though the movie is almost two and a half hours. (gasps) Why does this keep happening? It's too long. It's Mm. far too long, especially when we're talking about it's all atmosphere and feeling. That's two and a half hours of all atmosphere and feeling and no typical climax and no typical conclusion. So just going to set you up for that now because I don't want you to go in thinking we're in for your typical hero's journey. Is this in cinema as well? Is this Netflix? No. So I think it was just limited release online and on Netflix. But what is interesting, and I think a lot of people might check this out for this reason, is it's one of the first films that's released by the Obama's production company. Mm. They're newly minted production company, so they're one of the producers on board of this as well. God, they haven't put their kids on the crew or anything, have they? Oh, who knows? I'm sure who they knows? <laughs> Nepotism goes far and wide. The farmers aren't above it. <laughs> oh, so it's an adaptation? It is. It's an adaptation of a book by Sam Esmail. Oh, sorry. It's an adaptation of a book by uh, Ruman Alam. So this came out in 2020. Probably no coincidence, right? He's been writing it before the pandemic. Maybe it kind of influenced him a little bit who's to say it got very popular so it's a pretty popular well-known book in sort of book circles 
and the film is directed and written by Sam Esmail. So he's worked on this adaptation and he's done a lot of things in this technology space. He's a creator and director of Mr. Robot, the TV series, and he's done a lot of other collaborations with Julia Roberts as well. So, yeah. It's Can been I... a while since we've seen her, yeah. isn't it? Uh, How is she? I feel she's... like it's a shame she's come back for a dad. Well, I think dad's probably a bit strong. She's fantastic in this. She always she always is, in my opinion, even in bad films. I think she does a good job. I think it's only a dud depending on what you expect out of a film. And I think this one is designed to make you feel rather than go on a ride. Not to say it's... I didn't find it boring. I'm oh, okay. fine with all atmosphere, no resolution, personally. <laughs> I enjoyed it. And I think the filmmaking is quite spectacular. There's a lot of ways they set up the feeling of the holiday home. There's a lot of beautiful shots of how they play with colour and light and shadow. And I think actually as a piece of work, it's really fantastic. I think probably where it's going to fall down for people is the pace and the plotting and what people expect out of movies like this. Well, yeah, a bit... Television shows, to me, are so they feel very formulaic or I'm on a procession of dopamine hit and everything. So anything that takes its time and pushes a vibe onto me, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of up for. Yeah, and it's also very aware of the calibre of actors it's working in. It gives them the space to really connect with each other. I thought the acting was great. I think all of these actors are fantastic. <laughs> How does casting work for you? We're talking leave the world behind. And so, for instance, Ethan Hawke for me is, uh, I'll, I'll, look, I'll watch what Ethan Hawke's up to. Same. Makes, yeah. <laughs> so is that, is that the way casting works for you? Is that the, it's like, well, do we all just subconsciously go, I like that actor or they mm. make good choices or, I mean, what's, is there anything else at play here? Or they just go, Julia Roberts is a flashy name. Let's put her in this role. I think for this film, it's probably both. I think Denzel was originally cast in this. So if we're thinking like a Denzel, Julia, you know, re, 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 reuniting after, I think they worked on the Pelican Brief together, uh, that would have been God, great. I feel like that's a play, right? They were going to do that specifically. Denzel dropped out. We got Mahershala, in my opinion, he is spectacular. Very happy to have him. So I think in some ways, I think these creators have a really nice collaborative relationship with Julia Roberts, considering Esmail has worked with her before. So I think there's a creative element there, but also it's Julia Roberts. Mm. Of course, you're going to be like, so Julia, you've worked with me before. Come on, <laughs> this one. Yeah. And I think Ethan Hawke was a bit quiet for a while and he's starting to peep back up. And for me, I will watch anything. And I think he was actually the surprise in this. Mm -hmm. He plays kind of a, he's the cool dad. He's the happy-go-lucky guy. In one scene, he's wearing this vintage bikini heel T-shirt. I'm like, all right, I know who you are. (laughs) But he has some of the best lines and some of the most self-aware scenes in the film. And I think it's very easy to pull focus on someone like a Julia. But I love that Ethan Hawke is here just kind of, reminding everyone that he's a thing. Yeah, right. (laughs) What do you think of the Before Sunset franchise? I think, like many things, including this film, it's gone on a little long. Yeah. But I love the premise. Mm. I love the idea. Like, I'm a big, like, link later stuff as well. Like, I just love the whole vibe of let's just keep keep things going over decades. Yeah, yeah. You can do it, let's do it. Okay, well, leave the world behind. It's described as an apocalyptic psychological thriller. Is that more or less what you'd say? See, I think it's those tag words that mislead people. Yeah. yeah it sounds so you, exciting. Yeah, you're going to go in and be like, ready for edge of my seat. And you will be on the edge of your seat, yep. but in kind of a different way. I think if you're interested in going deep on thinking about your role in society, 
admiring the art of filmmaking and really appreciating the chemistry between actors, great. If you're looking for loads of explosions, there are some. Loads of explosions, not necessarily. Uh, there's a great there's a great scene that Elon Musk hates, which that's a win for me, so <laughs> tick in that column. Uh, there's a lot good about the film, but I can see why it's divisive. Got it. I can see why some audience will despise this movie. And Zero G, what's the status? I think it's a yeah. Oh, uh, Zero G, sorry, the your show. Yes. I, I, I want to know about it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love it. Yes, so direct. That's how, that's your rating. So you there on Monday? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'll be there on Monday. Oh my god! It's so good to have you in the studio, Megan McHugh. Leave the world behind. The new film by Sam Esmail. It's on Netflix now. Thank you. Woo! <sighs> that's right. Triple R. If you're just tuning in, we are, of course, joined this morning by Anthony Carew. Mon is off this week. And as you said off air, Anthony... Just, to, just today. Oh, just today. Oh, did I say this week? Sorry. Yeah, just today. Um, of yeah, course, she'll be back one, tomorrow. This yeah. is my one and only you're off the hook. celebrity <laughs> guest appearance. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know why I said that. Let's just blame the morning, but I should be used to it. Um but you saw Carolyn Polachek. I did, yes. Last, last night. night at the forum. Yeah. How was it? Uh, you know, it was very full. It was very fun. Um, yeah. And entertainment was had by all. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, I'm sure a lot of people will be coming off a big weekend after Meredith. Uh, yeah, yeah. I hope you all fared well in the weather. I yes. I saw a few pics. It looked quite muddy, but that can add to the fun sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, well, I mean, when was the last time you got muddy? <sighs> I, I have no memory you avoid, of it. Exactly. You just avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, Muddy's a nightmare. Yeah. I, 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 it, what, but there's something about mud where once it's started, like if the levee's broken, it, in for a penny, in for a pound. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like we've all done that. Or maybe I think I went to a Meredith or a Golden Plains years ago and it was really wet and just went full in, maybe like after one pink flamingo or something, be like, this isn't so bad, this is so great, and then you kind of just slide down a hill or you get completely muddy and then you regret it for, I don't know, the next yeah, five yeah. to six hours. <laughs> <laughs> I remember tales of one very rainy Glastonbury where people got a bunch of people got trench foot and it was the oh first God. time since World War One because they were just oh standing God. in mud and water for days on end. Oh, God, it's not what you want mm. in a music festival. Well, I had a far less... Less we forget. Yeah. <laughs> that is Trench foot at Glastonbury. A far less eventful weekend for those uh, at Meredith. But on Saturday, I did receive a big, long text from my sister. Mm-hmm. And it was, I guess, a significant text for this time of year because it was the Chrissy lunch text. So she's hosting... And she um, outlined everyone who's coming, the, the basic details, time, address. But then she continued to go on and list who, because it's like a collaborative lunch, I guess, or everyone is bringing something. So mm-hmm. she's not doing all of the cooking. And so she outlined in this text who who is to bring what. She's delegating responsibility. Thank you. She is. And we've spoken about this previously of – 
I kind of think that maybe sometimes like what your friends, like the favours your friends ask you to do or maybe the dishes you're asked to bring to an event like Christmas lunch can sometimes be a direct reflection on maybe how they see you and what they think you're capable of. So I, I feel like in many ways this text is like, you know, the cast of a play going sure. on. Sure. So what does your sister believe you to be capable of? <gasps> well, okay, here's the thing. Let me tease it out a little bit. Okay. So so she's outlined. So we've got the mains. So you've got your proteins, chicken, fish, lamb, whatever else, your alternatives. Then you have your hearty salads, your pumpkins, your potatoes. So I think obviously the mains are the main the supporting role or maybe the love interest in the play <laughs> is the potato salads. Then you have got your starters and entrees. And I think they're kind of more like a bit part. Yeah. Like the bit of the sidekick um, or, or like the comic relief. And then there's the ensemble cast. And I mean, and tell me if you disagree as well. This is just my assessment of it. The ensemble ensemble is like the dessert and Uh then background stagehand is bringing drinks. So that's my breakdown of it. Okay. Previously, I have always brought the – or have been asked to bring like a starter entree. Yeah. So I was really hoping for a bit more responsibility this year. I've been vocal about um, embracing roasting vegetables. I never used the oven much. You know, and up until the last couple of years, so I've been vocal about that, and that I've been getting more into cooking. So you were agitating for a bigger part, exactly. <laughs> but promoted to mains and bypassing, say, the hearty salad territory. I definitely don't think I didn't want mains, but yeah, I was hoping for hearty salad. Right. Where I landed is somewhere different. Where I landed, I was uh, delegated with the mocktail. Which I don't know how to feel about that. Can kids have mocktails? I, I mean, I guess I know they can, but is it if I see a child drinking <laughs> my mocktail, I would feel infantile. Yes, I mean, and you could also make an argument that anything's a mocktail, couldn't you? Like anything non-alcoholic with a slight garnish, uh, with uh, with two ingredients, with at mm. least two ingredients. I mean, you want. I think the rule, not the rule, but an. Uh, Maybe the yardstick for a successful mocktail is kids don't want to drink it. Oh, okay. Or I was thinking that I've just been like relegated to the kids' table. Is the mocktail for the kids? Because there is a cocktail that has been designated. To someone else. To someone else. Would you I don't put, know how to feel about that. You I'm, would put cocktail above mocktail in this uh, theatrical hierarchy? A hundred percent. I mean, I have an RSA, Anthony. Like, <laughs> I am more than willing to, like, it, it screams a lack of trust to me that they don't trust me to dose out the alcohol to the family, which you think as the the auntie without any kids uh-huh. that I should be – I am – Perfect for the cocktail, I would argue. I don't know, bringer of fun. So what do they think maybe – I'd imagine the cocktails will be in high demand. So Mm. are they worried that you'll be like Lucille Ball on the conveyor belt? (laughs) Uh, You know, it'll be chaos and spillage. Whereas if you just – you know, if it's you and the designated drivers, then maybe – 
Yeah. Uh, that's more. And then maybe next year, next Christmas, we'll like dial you up to we'll, the spirits. We'll dial you up. I, yeah, but look, that could be the thinking. I, I mean, that must be it. I am choosing to believe that it is an error of judgment. Mm-hmm. And potentially <laughs> that they just haven't thought about it. They were so stressed drafting the Chrissy text, delegating all of the jobs that it was an administrative error. Is it and the, it will be corrected. Is it the same uh, director or casting director each each year? No, this is new. This is a big change up. So potentially she's feeling the pressure. Okay. You know, and also, uh, the, this hierarchy, I don't really believe in the hierarchy because I think everything has the potential to sing. Mm-hmm. Everything. I mean... There's no small parts. That's right. Yes, I know. <laughs> Not to sound like a high school drama teacher, uh, but I I think that you can pull... So I had mentioned to me, I'm, I was on cocktails mm. for one event mm-hmm. four years ago mm-hmm. and it got brought up to me on the weekend, my French martini. Because it was so fast. It was because it was just <gasps> absolutely outstanding, and they think about it often. Oh. And I and so I feel like if you if you start, you have to treat what you're given with the utmost respect, and and not be bitter or resentful about it, and and prove yourself this year. I hundred and ten percent agree, and I want this recipe for this French martini, mm-hmm. by the way. But no, I agree that you need to bring hundred and ten percent to any part you're given on stage or at. Chrissy lunch. I was delegated the starters one year and I think they thought, oh, she'll buy some hummus, she'll cut some celery and carrots and we'll be done, a few olives. No, 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 no. I made every dip from scratch and I made as well, one of my sisters has a lot of dietaries and I, so I made sure everything ticked the box for her and I made these lovely chickpea pancakes. It was a hit and people still talk about those chickpea pancakes. And I'm not saying this to take the limelight away from the French martini. It's just more <laughs> that I, I agree. But I do think sometimes what you're given is maybe a little bit revealing, but you can definitely always shine if you want to. Um, Is this tapping into some kind of high school or adolescent (laughs) drama (laughs) trauma of looking for your name on the, on the board in the casting? Yeah, potentially I was cast one year in the chorus, but only as a dancer. So I feel similar about the mocktail in, in what I've, what I've been given. So, yeah, you're right, Anthony. It is a bit of a sore spot. I think we could all lower our Christmas expectations and as long as there's no trench foot, it's been an absolute (laughs) Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.